Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada, with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. And as you know, it's not always a veteran or first responder that I have on the show. I have all kinds of interesting stories that come here that are relevant and have to do with resiliency and mental health. And the resiliency expert is now on the show today, Joe Roberts. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Mark, it's great to be on the program. Thank you so much for the invite. Well, I've been looking forward to this one a lot. Uh, first saw you at the suicide um, symposium, I suppose it would be called, that uh, that was put on. and That was in Calgary, wasn't it? That was in Calgary, about yeah, three years right. ago, maybe. Yeah, and it was wonderful to hear your story on there, and uh, everybody that was in that church that day was uh, pretty pretty riveted listening to your story, and uh, had a chance to meet you briefly there. That's when I had the Mankey Show podcast, uh, but it never did get around to uh, getting you on. But you're here now uh, on episode number one ninety two. So um, let's start at the end and then work our way back a little bit. You pushed a cart across Canada in in 2016. Pushed a modified shopping cart 9,000 kilometers across Canada. So, you know, some some fellas have a midlife crisis and get a Corvette. Uh, I decided to use my uh, midlife crisis to to do something to have a community impact and and really to raise awareness. And what it was all about was – it's sort of a throwback to my story. I wanted to do something to raise awareness, to support young people who struggle with mental health, addiction. You know, let's face it, not all families or homes are created equal. And, you know, I was I was that guy uh, back in the late 80s, homeless, addicted to opiates, living in Vancouver's downtown east side. So my story ended well, and I wanted to do something to draw attention to it. And the shopping cart is that, you know, that symbol of chronic homelessness. So we, you know, it's funny because it was on an air, it was on an airplane ride to Calgary uh, working with some clients when uh, my business partner at the time said, well, why don't, you know, we were talking about how do we engage Canadians in a conversation and, you know, we were 
reminiscent about, you know, the great legend of uh, Terry Fox gave us and, you know, other great Canadians like Rick Hansen. And we said, well, why don't we, you know, cross the country and, you know, along the way, we'll, we'll be able to have a conversation with military, with police, with stakeholders in the communities, with the homeless service providers, and most of all, with students. And so that was, you know, that was the dream, go from, you know, East Coast to West Coast. And it took 17 months. I woke up every day at 5 and pushed the shopping cart 24 kilometers. And I slowly edged my way across the country. And along the way, you know, it was absolutely phenomenal. I, you know, I remember I, I had two thoughts. One was I wasn't going to make it because I was 49 when I did this. And I'm a, I'm a self-admitted, at that time in my life, a self-admitted non-athlete. <laughs> you know, I would have got kicked out of boot camp. Like I wouldn't, I was just not, I was soft. I was, you know, 60 pounds overweight. I was not a sporty guy, right? Was not, that's like, one hell of a weight loss program, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a throw you into the deep end kind of a game, right? But, you know, my heart was in it. And so I, I just figured it out. And I, you know, and yeah, and, and, um, we, you know, just we kept at it. And, and, um, but along the way, you know, I was, the other thing I was worried about was not just my body, but was anybody going to care? You know, like who, you know, was some guy in a shopping cart, what's that all about? But I just told my story in an honest and, and transparent way. And the, the great thing, and this is what your, you know, this is what your show is all about. It's like, let's talk, let's have a conversation, let's get out there, let's be transparent. And just by standing in front of stakeholders across the country, um, yeah, I, I was able to to uh, hold court and, and 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 talk about some really important things. And the greatest support that we got were from first responders, fire, ambulance, uh, massive police presence. We had the OPP behind us. We had the Mounties behind us. Every every city police force. And in fact, we had we had some small touch points with military when I got to Moose Jaw. Now Brigadier General. Uh, uh, Dennis O'Reilly met us and uh, gave us a tour of the base. We got an opportunity to talk to some of Canadian's finest uh, um, pilots, and and yeah, it was it was it was just remarkable the impact that we had, Mark. Well, it's a remarkable journey, and to start that at forty nine. I mean, I was feeling pretty good about myself because I started uh, arm wrestling at fifty. So I thought, hey, that's all right. But that ain't walking across the country, man. Jesus. Yeah. You know, I, I never really was good at making smart and wise decisions in my <laughs> life. Hey, eh? <laughs> you, you know, you know what it was though. It's kind of like you know, like a lot of things that we do midlife. It's it's like I had a big question mark of whether I could do this, and uh, but because my heart was in it, we just figured it out. We had ten thousand things to do; they were all impossible, and you know, it's only impossible until you do it. And for, you know, we, we, first problem was a shopping cart and then we needed to raise a million dollars. Like I had a lot of business friends and contacts cause I had success in the business world, but you know, you can imagine this conversation. Hey, uh, a friend of mine, you want to give me a million dollars to push a shopping cart across Canada? And you know, I got a lot of attaboys and slaps on the back, but funding was scarce and hard to come by. We wanted to make sure that all of the money that we raised went to support initiatives and the kids, not, pay for our RV or meals at Nanny's. So, you know, we had some, some big, big things to, you know, we had some big, big uh, roadblocks to overcome. And by simply staying in action, we were able, you know, I remember one of the best days of my life is like I walked for, I don't know, maybe five months all across 
the entire uh, island and, and you know the entire uh, Newfoundland uh, island. That's a big through. ass island too. Yeah, and, and people said to me, said, well, why don't you start in Nova Scotia? And I said, well, because Canada doesn't start in Nova Scotia. Canada starts in Newfoundland. And that was a lot of desolate highway in, in the month of May. By the way, if you're planning any vacations to uh, to Newfoundland, it doesn't open until June, right? <laughs> <laughs> the weather there in May is not the weather here in May, okay? Just let's be clear. It's an island out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, right? <laughs> But the people were warm, and, and, you know, we engaged in Corner Brook. We engaged in St. John's. We engaged in, in Gander, Newfoundland, and, you know, people were beautiful. And then Atlantic Canada, Nova Scotia, you know, PEI, New Brunswick, beautiful people. Big events in the major hubs, right? Quebec, I was worried because I don't speak French. Uh, I understand a little bit, but not enough to really hold, you know, to, to tell my story. But what what I didn't understand is that most – French Canadians understand English far more than Canadian than English Canadians understand French. So I was able to tell my story in, you know, Montreal and Quebec. But when we got to Ontario, the Ontario Provincial Police had supported us. They were our community safety partner. And I, I remember walking over the bridge into Hawkesbury, and there was about a thousand people waiting for us on the other side. The commissioner of the OPP, uh, Vince Hawks at the time, um, all kinds of brass, about a thousand students, but but it was when I got closer and closer, I realized there was somebody waiting for me. It was it was none other than the great uh, uh, Walter Gretzky. Oh, and, wow. And uh, Walter walked with us that day, and you know, just an amazing guy. And You know, anytime I meet people who I admire, uh, I always want to learn from them. And so I said, Walter, you know, what one piece of advice would you give me? And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, don't quit. And, you know, I remember the time, Mark, thinking – you know, I was hoping for a little something, something a little meatier, something a little, but, um, but really that's, know. that it, it's the simplest, but don't quit is really the key to achieving anything. It, it really is. And it sounds simple, but there's, there was so many times on that campaign in Northern Ontario in the wintertime, we chose to walk over Lake Superior highway 17 in the dead of winter. So, you know, I'm up in places like Wawa and, and uh, you know, um, uh, Nipigon in the middle of winter with the, you know, storms coming off Superior. And but here, hearing that, you know, hearing, hearing that voice in my head, don't quit, don't quit. You know, and it goes back to my, my time in, in my greatest troubles and in, in addiction and, you know, struggling with, you know, so many days in my life back in the day when I was, you know, struggling when, yeah, I wanted to give up and, 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 but not knowing what to do, you know, there, there was so many days in my life way before this time where, you know, the world was really dark. I didn't know if there was anything on the other side of that. And I was tired and I didn't have someone like Walter's advice in my ear. I didn't know how to get up off the couch and move forward. Right. But today I understand that, you know, if I gave up today, I would be ripping myself off with so many extraordinary tomorrows. And so when I, you know, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. Um, you know, how life, how good life can be on the other side of all that crap. And if you don't quit, yeah, you don't quit. You keep going. And, you know, there's a couple more things to it than that. You got to also get, a, you know, you've got to have, 
you got to have the um, the courage to rat yourself out and talk about what's going on between your ears. Yeah, they um, in one of uh, the peer support groups, they they call it uh, telling on yourself. Yeah, yeah, you do. You got to drop a dime on yourself. You really, <laughs> you really do. And and for years, I was a you know, I was raised with this. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what your audience. I would assume there's probably a lot of guys listening, right? Not to alienate the, the gals. Who listen, Actually, but- uh, I, I'm proud to say it's about fifty fifty. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. I've, I've been trying uh, hard to make sure I, that it's uh, as inclusive as possible. So it's about 50-50. Well, I think that there's, and, and this also goes for the gals as well, though. There's certain jobs or certain professions where it's kind of suck it up, buttercup. You know, it's like, we don't, you know, and, and we're moving away from that. It's great that we're having conversations, but let's face it. If you're in the military, if you're in police, if you're in fire, if you're in, you know, you're in one of those roles. These are roles that, predominantly evolved out of a paramilitary culture. And so the suck it up and the, you know, the, the illusion of self-sufficiency is, you know, these are some of the things that, that I grew up with is, you know, big boys don't cry and, you know, you don't, you don't share your emotions and find another way to deal with it. Right. And so that's what I did. I mean, I had, you know, all these things go on when I was a kid and I found a way to deal with it. It was through alcohol and drugs. And, but, 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 but that didn't work. You know, I, I, um, eventually at some point I had to sort of face all that and either crash and burn and, and, you know, either end up in a jail cell or dead, or I had to sort of face all of that. And, you know, I faced a lot of scary things in my life, but there was nothing scarier for me than actually having to face my emotions and sharing that stuff in a room with other people. What was your first aha moment? Uh, you were homeless, living under a bridge, addicted to drugs. What was, was it, was it a person or, and I mean, before Constable McLeod. Yeah. Before you met Scott McLeod, what was the aha yeah. movement that, that got you back to Ontario to try to get your shit sorted out? Well, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. First, I think it's I had access to resources, and that's one of the reasons why I advocate loudly for this stuff because, look, I'm lucky. I did have Scotty in my corner, and I had a mom, and I, but I had access to things, doors that I could open, but not everybody has those, right? But, but, but to answer your question, I think it was a combination of – I really think it's a combination of um, divine spiritual intervention – Okay. Yeah. Or and um, self-preservation. There's probably you know if I was to handle, you can look at it and go you know God came into my life and really helped put the people and resources and pathway for me to exit. Okay. Great. And I and I believe to some degree in some of that. But then there's the other piece that that I also understand how our brains work. It's like I was watching my my teenage friends start to drop like flies. And this was late 80s, so nothing like it is today, you know. I mean, we're getting, what, six to nine bodies, you know, per month or per day here in, in B.C. It's, it's, it's unfathomable. The, the down, of, uh, where, where you were, there's, there's that one spot uh, in downtown Vancouver that most Canadians actually don't know about still to this day, but it's, mm. it's worse – it's a worse skid row than the one in Los Angeles. And is that on where? Many, 
Yeah, on many levels, and that's where I ended up. But the funny thing is on that is, like, I grew up in Midland, Ontario. I grew up at 759 Dominion Avenue. My my life was a perfect sitcom for the first eight <laughs> years. You know, I had a dad, mom. Leave dad, it to Beaver. Yeah. Yeah, totally leave it to Beaver, which, you know, if you're under the age of 30, I have no idea what, what Mark no. and I just said, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was. And I remember coming home from school, and mom was there, and she had the apron and the cookies baked, and, you know, everything was perfect. And then life lifed me. You know, walking down the road of life, minding my own business, and just like that, dad was gone. He died from a heart attack at 35. Mom's left raising three kids. And now all of a sudden we're way below the poverty line. We got mortgage and, you know, dad wasn't insured. So there's an economic hardship. Yeah, I've lost my dad and my, my rock, my anchor guy who used to say things like, I love you, you can be anything. And now all of a sudden he's gone. Mom's, you know, my mom lost her husband, love of her life. And we, we as a family lost our economic security. And so what did mom do? She remarried, right? Makes sense to me, you know, now as an adult, you know, the problem was the guy who came in next was a violent, abusive alcoholic. And so I went from a father who was supportive and loving and nurturing, who made me feel safe to a man who would say things like, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're a piece of shit, you'll never amount to anything. And so here's what, so when we go back and we look through this from the lens of trauma, I'd lost my dad, didn't deal with the grief. We had no counseling. You know, I, 30 years later, I was dealing with his, the grief of losing dad. Yeah, isn't that always then, the way? Yeah, you, and you don't. You stuff it. You screw it. Yeah, stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. Yeah. And then, and then the, the, the physical, mental uh, abuse from stepdad. And again, stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. And, by, and at nine years old, local kids were getting high on drugs. Um, I joined, not because I was rebellious. Or I thought it'd be cool to get high. I just wanted to join. I wanted to be a part. I wanted to. I wanted that sense of connection and community. And I joined. I got high, and I went home. And the violence at home didn't hurt. It didn't scare me anymore. My stepdad community would come up, and try to scare me. I'd be like, I'd smile at him like a Cheshire cat. I'm like, give it your best shot, pal. And I was like nine, ten at that time, and I found a way to cope with the emotional uncertainty in my life, and and that worked, man. Drugs worked. I didn't yeah. do them because you know it was the thing to do. I did them because they protected me from the emotional uncertainty internally and externally in the world around me. And I rode that. I also adopted all of the the mask that went along with it with inside that little clique or community. So I became the tough guy. I, you know, I, 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 I sort of adopted the lifestyle as well as the, you know, the pattern of, of, uh, of substance abuse. And so I became that guy, I, you know, Hankster the prankster, the wannabe gangster. And off I went, <laughs> you know, and, but, but the real, when we, when we clawed back all, all later on in life and recovery and therapy and stuff and clawed back all that bullshit, what was underneath was just a scared boy. It was pain. Total pain. Pain and fear. Yeah. yeah. Joe. But, 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 you, but you asked the question about what was that What was that catalyst? The moment. So I started at 9. At 15, I got kicked out of the house. At 16, I dropped out of school. At 17, I was, in, I was in, involved in the criminal justice system. I had no discipline in my life whatsoever. Probably one of the better places I should have gone is into the military. At least I would have got some structure, but I had nothing. I was just for a flag waving in the wind and, I jumped on a bus. I went out to Vancouver. And so now a small town kid, I landed in this big city. Within a few months, 
you know, I was, I was involved in heroin and uh, cocaine. And, and I eventually, you know, as life sort of degraded, as you mentioned, I was that guy living under a viaduct, pushing a shopping cart, collecting cans and bottles. One of those guys you'd see on any, you know, any inner city in, in, uh, in Canada and the United States. I was that guy mumbling to himself, scruffy hair, beard, clothes all layered, sleeping outdoors, collecting cans. And um, one day I sat down on a bench and there was this older man, his name was Gus, and he looked at me and he, you know, he says, you know, you, you got all this homeless addiction thing going on. He says, but you're an extraordinary, you're an extraordinary young man. And I remember kind of looking over my shoulder, looking for someone else, because I was not showing the world anything extraordinary. You know, I was yeah, dirty and disheveled and unbathed and black fingernails and yellow teeth. And, and, and my behavior was selfish. And, but he said, he said the, the, the words that still to this day have an impact on me. He said, there's more to you, Joe, than you can see. There's more to you than you can see. And I remember thinking, uh, well, it kind of struck me as like a thunderbolt because it was the first time in my life someone other than mom or dad spoke to my potential, my possibility. And I think, you know, one of my favorite words in, in the English lexicon is possibility because possibility speaks to what could be. A lot of time we paint ourselves into a corner in life, depression, anxiety, addiction, busted up marriages, failed businesses, and the emotion builds and builds and builds this gray cloud, right? And we don't see any way out of that. But there is something on the other side of that. And I know that because I've walked through that. And, and it's not just something that happened way back then either. Let's be really clear. I have tough days. I can, I, if, you, know, you know what's really interesting? I was thinking about this this morning, Mark. When I got lots going on, I'm good to go. Because I got lots of things to hit and hammer and business and flying here and talking to this group and going to this keynote and talking to these. I love that when I'm busy. When I'm not busy and then all of a sudden things quiet down. You're alone with your thoughts. Ooh, I can't stand that shit. Uh-uh. And that, that's when the walls start closing in. And I got to – I haven't figured out a way to just sit in the cushion. You know, there's some people who can do that. I'm not one of those people. So I have to pick a fight with something that will keep me busy. i got to find another carrot to dangle in front of me and run after it. So Being busy is your new drug. It is. And, and I know it's not the healthiest way to deal with it. Well, as, like, as, I, as coping mechanisms go, though, Joe, that's not so bad. Busy making yeah. is, is not so bad. But it's also it's a signpost that's talking to you saying, you still got some more shit to process. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but but it's a pretty good coping me- mechanism. You know, it, it works for you. But it, it's still, there's more to process. There's more healing to do still. Yeah, yeah and, you're, and you're right. And, and I think that the piece that I'm okay with is I'm honest about it. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm an amateur Ironman athlete. Okay. And then I remember a friend of mine who is healthy he says to me, so – what you're running from, <laughs> you know, cause anybody who, who swims four kilometers rides 180 K bike followed by a marathon. Um, it's not just about, you know, doing, doing the endurance stuff, but what I love about that is it does give me something to do and exercise and, and exercise wears me down. It floods my brain with really good, good chemicals and it, and it really helps me. And so instead of having, 
12 or 14 crappy days a month, I have three. Yeah, exercise, fitness, being strong uh, is that positive feedback loop. You know, it's just getting getting it started from a from a dead stop. That's always the trick. But once you get the ball rolling a little bit, uh, you do the hard work. You feel good about doing the hard work. Then you feel good about yourself, and your body feels good, and then your mind feels good, and and it's great as long as that ball rolls. But as soon as that stops rolling, well, there's if a it's not a daily that, so. if it, if it's not a daily habit, then it turns into a negative feedback loop, and, uh, yeah. and it goes the other direction. Well, there's, there's a model that Sean and I work through. So one of the people who inspired me to do the walk across Canada has been, has been a business colleague of mine for 12 years is a psychologist named Sean Richardson. He's a sports psych. He was in the Olympics, and now he's sort of a coach whisperer for elite uh, athletes and elite coaches all over the world. He's one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to understanding the brain, but also what do we need to do to create high performance? And so I, I live this, but I teach it. And it's this is really, really great for, for anyone listening to this. So the model is, is simplicity on the other side of complexity. It consists of three letters, A, I, and R, right? So success is in the air we breathe. Uh, and, and the beginning of that equation, let's say it's a goal or a question mark, or let's say it's stability or mental health or achieving an Ironman or losing 40 pounds or, um, you know, dealing with past trauma, whatever your possibility or goal is, you simply need to work through these three pieces. And I'm talking to this right now because you specifically talked about the inertia and getting stuck, right? Because goals are not as simple as choose what you want to do and get busy doing them. If it was that easy, well, then we would all achieve it because there's no lack of desire for us to want to be in a different place. We always, no matter you know how good things are, there's always another place to go. But why is it that we become stuck and, and like you say, not able to to get going from from a you know a hard stop. So here's what it looks like. The A are the actions that we need to take: putting our shoes on, going to a meeting, calling somebody. Right, let's say I'm dealing with anxiety and depression, right? And I'm feeling really dark, and it sucks. And my you know my my butt's sitting in that you know that indent in the couch, and it's so difficult for me to get up. One identify what one positive action could I take. I is the inspiration or purpose. Why would I want to do this? Why would I want to do this? So this comes back to that park bench sitting beside Gus, you know, that spark of hope, or maybe, maybe there's another role for me to play as a, you know, as a grandfather or, or maybe it's self-preservation or, but what is the why? What is the impetus? Sometimes that can be hard to tap into, especially if it's really dim. And R is the roadblock, recognizing that there are situational and psychological roadblocks. But when you tap into purpose and you take even the smallest action, the emotional climate changes like that. And that's the key. It doesn't have to be something giant and epic. Um, on my show, I'm big on making your bed, which has been all the rage lately. Uh, but it, it's because it's a small win. It's a small act of self-discipline, of self-respect. It's a small act of self-respect, and to build your self-respect, that create it, it requires action. It's not a feeling; it's a result of action. Is self-respect. Now, something I wanted to ask you um, for that impetus moment of yours, where that fella said to you, "There's more to you than you can see, Joe." There must have been something in you that believed him, because it, yeah. 
Well, I'm I'm really lucky because for the first eight years of my life, I had a solid family upbringing, and I didn't have I didn't come from chaos for the first eight years, and so we know child development and how all that good stuff works, and it's good and groovy. So there was a solid foundation there. Yeah. Gus just helped me tap into it, and he gave me a glimmer of hope. But you know, I don't want to miss you know mislead any listeners. It's not like you know the clouds parted. No, it wasn't <laughs> like that, right? But he gave me a shred of what he did is he the, the my world was black, and I really thought that I was going to die in a, in a doorway. And you right? saw a pinprick of light. Yeah, he gave me a, he just cracked the door open this much, and that was enough um, for me to reach out at uh, you know shortly after that, a few weeks after that, to reach out and and call mom. And, you know, I begged mom for a second chance and she gave me a second chance. She came out and she, she brought me back home to live in her basement in uh, Midhurst, Ontario. But it's not like the transformation happened. It was the beginning of a transformation. And there were, were, for, for probably I would say a two year period, it was you know, two steps forward, five steps backwards. But Joe, it, it, it is such a beautiful example of how little it takes to change somebody's life. Yeah. Just a couple of words of kindness might be all it takes to send somebody. You don't need some big lecture, you know. No. Uh, uh, Walter Gretzky said to you, don't quit. Two words. But it's yeah. because of who it was coming from, right? This fella, this random stranger sits down on a bench and says to you, Joe, there's more to you than you know. Yeah. And, and there was just that little ring of truth and hope that that brought. It, it's so important for us to be kind to each other. This is why. This is why not to look at Joe and go, oh, you're a, you're a crackhead, you're a druggie. These terrible, horrible labels that we yeah. put on people that are suffering, as opposed to, it's like, oh my God, I see that you're uh, destroyed by drugs. What happened to you? What's your story? Well, you just said it. That's probably the biggest question that I, when I see anybody who's, who looks like they're, uh, they're a mess. And by the way, there's a lot of us that are walking around all buttoned up, looking like we're not a mess, but we're a mess. There's, there's probably more of us that are absolutely you know, living in confusion and depression and anxiety and all kinds of stuff. And, but we're suited up and we're showing up. And so the, the people around us don't know. Uh, in many ways, I was, I, was, I was in a perfect position to be helped because, you know, I was wearing my shit storm on the outside, right? <laughs> and there's a lot of people who aren't. They're, they're just kind of keeping it all contained and they're not letting anybody in and they're, they're not talking about it or telling on themselves. And, but, um, but on the and, inside, and so, they're all suffering from imposter syndrome. So many, yeah. so many people that are all checked out, they got the nice suit and the nice car and everything else, but really they feel like a piece of shit inside. Yeah, it, it totally. And so I think that one of the things that, that Gus did for me is he provided a space and, and um, uh, he saw me. You know, being seen, I think it, there's two things, being seen and being heard. If I was to bust it down into that, that level of simplicity. It is but so- what, what he gave me, and this is what I encourage, like when somebody, somebody says to me, well, what do I do to help my son? Or what do I do to help my husband? Or what do I do to help my friend who's struggling? Lace up. 
You know, you talk about make your bed. Mine is lacing up. Put your shoes on. Yeah. I don't look. How do you? How do you? How do you get decades of recovery? You you, you do it an hour at a time, a day at a time. How do you walk across Canada? You do it a step at a time. And some of the hardest things that we have to do sometimes is simply lacing up, putting the shoes on, taking one step of action. You are not going to feel your way into good behavior. That is never going to happen, Mark. No. We don't. If you're waiting for yourself to feel good, to take some positive action in your life, it's not going to happen. What you have to do is take the action, and then the emotional climate shifts and changes. You want to create instant uh, 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 emotional change in your life, do something. When So we, we, we act our way into a good behavior. When I'm feeling like crap, I'll go to an online meeting. I'll call my sponsor. I'll talk to a friend. I'll call a business uh, associate. If I haven't worked out for a couple of days and I'm feeling like I'm out of, you know, I'm out of exercise integrity, I'll go for a short run. I'll put my shoes on. But they don't have to be big, massive, life-changing actions. Just get up off the couch and put your shoes on and go for a 10-minute walk. Those couple of words of kindness that can change somebody else's life can change your own life if you give them to yourself. Yeah. And right. and never yeah, and, and those 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 moments of kindness is to you know, when somebody's presenting, oftentimes to hurt presents itself as anger. You know, all anger is is fear in a party dress. And for years I used anger and and I still, you know, but what what I say that again. Anger is is fear in a party dress. Just, anger is just fear in a party dress. I love that. Because it is. If, if I'm angry, I'll just talk about me. When I'm angry, at, let's say business deals going sideways. I'm yelling at the computer. I'm yelling at the sky, whatever. What am I afraid of? Oh, I'm afraid of losing that account. I'm afraid of lack. I'm questioning my own abilities. I've heard it said that uh, anger is the guard dog of sad. And, yeah. You know, but either way, anger is the symptom of something else going on. It's, it's, um, it's the mask. Anger is just a mask. It's a surface yeah. thing. There's something underneath that anger. So when I'm, I'm confronted with that today, or I see sad, or I see hurt, or I see brokenness, I ask an empathic question, what happened before that happened? And that's what Gus did for me on that park bench. But Gus was just the beginning. You know, the, the real breakthrough actually happened in, uh, in Ontario. So I'm living in my mom's basement. But I'm not sober. Mom provided like a housing first strategy. She put a roof over my head and I was no longer, you know, scuffling on the streets of Vancouver. But I was, I had still gotten nowhere closer to dealing with my trauma, my addiction, um, my mental health, you know, my state of mental health. And one of my patterns, Mark, was I used to drink and drug and become suicidal or I had suicide ideation would happen a lot, especially if I, a combination of alcohol and pills. Yeah, that'll do it. And it was, and the other thing is because I was still sort of involved in criminal fringe activities. Like, let, let's be clear, I was never a threat to society. I was only a threat to myself. I was more of a nuisance to, to police. But I, I clung to that identity. And, and so part of that was um, somewhere along the lines, Mark, I had acquired a, a handgun. 
and it was in my room. And one night my mom came into my room and I was all liquored up and I was into a whole bunch of different pills and I was mumbling something, but she looked and beside, beside me on the bed was this nine millimeter, uh, handgun. And she freaked out as I mean, who wouldn't, she ran out of the room and called nine one one. And the, this was in Ontario. And so dispatch went out to the Ontario provincial police and the house was, um, cordoned off and I was in the basement. So they weren't too sure if I was a threat to them or if I was just a threat to myself or what, all they got was a man barricaded gun. Right. And so, you know, knowing what I know today about use of force, this really could have not turned out well. This could have really been bad for me. And, you know, it, it just another night and a different, uh, you know, a different set of circumstances, and it just would have ended real quick. Well, but it wasn't your time. You had, uh, you had purpose. You had a, God had a plan for you. Something. Yeah, I, I think so. That's the way I look at it, definitely. And uh, anyways, Scott McLeod was uh, the lead. He was the lead um, officer on scene, and he decided to come down into the basement and see if he could chat with me. And he tried to call Basically, there was this long set of stairs, and then you, when you come the bottom of the stairs and turn, there was two rooms. I was in the one on the right, and I was in that room. So Scotty came down on the stairs and then turned and hollered at the door for me to come out. And I come stumbling out and I was wearing this terry cloth uh, house coat and just a pair of uh, like pajama bottoms and, and long stringy hair. You were you looking know, the part. Like, oh yeah. I was casting <laughs> for dope fiend, you know, <laughs> and I was, you got the role. Yeah. I was out of my skull loaded. I was just, just everything, uh, barbiturates and alcohol. It, it just was not good. And there, there were pillars in the basement. There was three of them. Um, these, you know, like those big round posts. Yeah. But they, they, they had this wood around them. I walked out of my door and I walked head first into the first one. Funk. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Scott didn't know what to think, but he, he didn't. It's funny because later on with the, um, in an interview, I think, with the CBC, he said, I didn't see a man who was a threat. I saw a kid who was in trouble. And I think that empathic view um, saved my life. It, you know, in so many ways, Scott was 25 years ahead of the mental health bell curve. And so he used his communication to diffuse a very dangerous situation. He didn't know if I had that weapon in my pocket because I was wearing this terry cloth coat with these big pockets he he had he would have had no idea i could have easily you know it could have but i wasn't i i didn't want to hurt anybody i was just hurting myself and anyways i i got arrested that night and i uh he diffused that situation he put separation between me and the weapon the most important thing was to diffuse it to get the weapon and once that was once that happened i got a ride to royal victoria hospital where I was admitted into emergency and into the mental health uh, unit. And then later from there, I ended up in a detox facility in Kingston and a full residential treatment program. 
when I tell this story to law enforcement, my story is a story of what happens when um, when police get it right. So often, Mark, you hear these stories because bad stories play better than good ones. And I know that law enforcement have work to do. I, I get that. But it breaks my heart when I look at my beautiful family and the life I've had for the last 30 years of the millions and millions and millions of positive interactions from law enforcement every single day. And Scott, anyway, so, so I go to treatment. I go to college. At one year sober, I called Scott and let him know I had a year sober. You know, when I graduated, I called Scott and let him know I graduated college with honors. You know, when I had, my daughter was born, I called him and let him know. It is such a long way to go. Um, oh, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a lady by the name of Jeannie Barton, Barton on the uh, show here. And uh, Virginia, uh, she didn't turn around and have that aha moment till she was 41. So somehow she survived to the age of 41, uh, living the drug life and, and crime and everything else. Um, you know, so yeah, you, you definitely did a little bit better than Jenny. So uh, what... You're about 25. Uh, oh, Jimmy, I seen her on LinkedIn. She's yeah, from the yeah. States. Yeah, I yeah. know. I know. Yeah, I know. I know her. Yeah, she's Actually, on next month. And connected with her. Brilliant story. I love it. Love it. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's it's very, very parallel, you know, yeah. uh, for, for yourself. Um uh, actually, I wanted to ask you, have you seen Gabor Mate's uh, The Wisdom of Trauma? Have you seen that documentary? I have, and I'm familiar with Gabor. You know, Gabor worked in that area I lived in for years and years, and we share a lot of uh, there's some things that he's into that I, I don't, I'm not too keen on. But like what that, that piece on trauma is bang on. It's bang on. You know, um, what is it about Gabor's work that uh, doesn't resonate for you? Well, there's some things around. I'm not as convinced on the therapeutics and the psychedelic stuff. And well, why is that? Um, because I'm a long-term zero abstinence recovery guy. Yeah. And so yeah. the idea, and, and I'm not saying this for anybody else. Okay. Yeah. So I don't want to be controversial, but for me, the idea of doing psychotropic drugs to deal with unresolved trauma scares the hell out of me because now I'm starting to screw around possibly with my own recovery date. Yeah. And you know, M- Mark, my story isn't a continuous non relapse recovery. I got clean after the interaction with Scott, he went to treatment, graduated college, went out in the world and killed it. In less than 12 years, I was on the cover of Canadian Business Magazine as a celebrated Canadian entrepreneur. So 12 years from Skid Row to CEO. It makes perfect sense how psychedelics would uh, freak you out well, a little. Well, here's what happened for me. At 12 years, I start, I had a, a routine operation and they gave me some pills and I didn't take them properly. And yeah. just like that, my sobriety went away. And I and it took me three years. Three years later, I crawled my way back into recovery. Now I didn't look like the guy on the street anymore because I had money and success, so I was able to sort of insulate myself from homelessness and crime and all that other crap. But still, I almost died the second time. And so now, actually, on March 13th, I'm coming up on 15 years again. Amazing. But my experience has said, be very wary. And so that that's all yeah. the thing is that the, and and. The, until the research is really comprehensive and complete, I'm scared. Personally, I'm scared at the idea of, of doing ayahuasca or mushrooms yeah. or LSD to deal with. And so that's that that's the only bone of contention I have. But everything else that that uh, you know, wisdom of trauma and and uh, because there's a lot of great science behind 
behind that stuff. And, and when I listen to it, I'm like, yep, bang on. That's me for sure. Well, it's, no. it's, it's wise of you to be cautious for sure. Um, all I would suggest because, um, the, the biggest help I've ever found is through psilocybin mushrooms by far ah, really? the, the, the lessons that I received, the help, the healing. So the difference is, um, drug for, for escape or drug or medicine for learning. That's the difference. I don't see psilocybin and ayahuasca as as drugs. I don't see them like heroin. I see them simply as a medicine and as a tool. Um, they're also not physically addictive, and they're not toxic. They can't kill you. You can't OD on mushrooms. You can try. Uh, you'll have a hell of a ride, but you can't. Uh, it can't kill you uh, unless you do something because you're in that state and you fall off a cliff or something. That can happen. But uh, the mushrooms themselves can't kill, can't kill you. Um, so that's what I would offer, is that it really is medicine. And that's firsthand. <laughs> it's the best well, medicine I've ever taken. A friend of mine, is the, he's one of the directors at an institution in Canada who's, who is uh, in wide support of psychotropic drugs, mushrooms. And, and I listen with an open mind. I just, I think... And, and I don't want to steer anybody away from any pathway to health and recovery. So I don't want to be that guy. It's just that, you know, when, when I was 16, 17, 18, we did mushrooms and drank beer. I dropped acid and, you know, that was part of my, that was part of my hoorah, if you will. And so um, to me, it's a door I, I prefer not to open. But I've also found the pathway through some of that stuff. In, in, in alternative ways. And so, yeah, I would definitely say if, you know, if, you know, these other things or whatever, and, and, and that works for you, then I'm all for it. You know, live and let live is, is sort of my motto, Mark. And uh, I also think that if you get stuck on this modality of zero, uh, zero, like I'm a zero abstinence guy because I, I attend 12-step meetings. But I want to acknowledge and recognize that's not everybody's path. Yeah, it just there's there's a there's a thousand roads to Rome, and whatever gets you through the night gets you through your day. Because I would rather I would rather somebody who's going to continue to consume and use drugs and stay alive long enough to figure it out than to than to create some sort of boundary to put them in a position where they're not alive because well, they didn't have other options, right? That's the some of the beautiful messaging in the wisdom of trauma is drugs made perfect sense. <laughs> like of course, if it was if your choice was drugs or, or suicide, well, I would say drugs is probably the better of the two. You yeah. know, uh, because you can recover from drugs, you can't recover from from suicide. When that's done, you're done. Well, and, and I often say one of the greatest uh, benefits in my life is I got deep into something that there's lots of tools to recover from. I'm grateful I'm an addict because I can go to a room full of people who are addicts. It, once your problem becomes splintered and, and it's, you know, you're, you're, you're that person who feels like you're so alone and there's no one else who could per possibly understand. Like when I think of, of veterans, about how lonely it would feel to be in northern Saskatchewan where you're the only person in your town 
who had that experience. You don't, you don't have someone who you can just kind of call up. I can, I can go into a room full of people in recovery pretty much anywhere on this planet. In fact, I got two flavors of it. I can go to the, to the, you know, this one group or I can go to that one group. And so it's, there's so many options, but if, and, and it, and it comes back to that being seen and heard, right? Do you still participate in peer support? Oh, definitely. Yeah, you're never too old to learn stuff. Sometimes I'm giving, but a lot of times I'm still receiving. Look, I'm I'm a I'm a day away from my next drink or drug, Mark. I, I don't have this thing figured out. And just because there's some, you know, crap on the wall and some money in the bank doesn't mean that I'm, you know, any more sane in traffic today. Like I, I, I'm battling this thing a day at a time. It just means you're stable and you've learned to manage it well. I just have experience and toolkits. That's it. Yeah. So I have, instead of having 29 crappy days and one good one, I have maybe, you know, 28 good days and two crappy ones. But in those two crappy ones, it can go sideways fast. I have a self-destruct button inside my brain. <laughs> I do. Yeah. And it's like, and, 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 you know, and I carry my own nuclear codes in football. You know, it's like, so I want to, <laughs> there's something inside my brain some days that just wants me dead. Yeah. And I can tell that because of the way I think. It's like, you know, I'll be walking down the road, and my, you know, everything's going great, and then my head will say, hey, we should do this. And I'll be like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that today. That's not, that's not smart. <laughs> that's not a good idea. But that's because I've got, you know, I've got a few years. I've been banging around and doing this. I mean, I've been sober longer than I, w- I was ever using. So I, I've got a combined, I think, yeah, I've I've been clean twenty seven of the last thirty years. Oh, it's spectacular. Uh, it'll be uh, two years in April that I've been oh, bo- bo- bone dry sober, and uh, uh, it's not like I was a train wreck because of it. But I saw the train coming. I saw the know, train coming, so I stepped off the tracks uh, a, a little earlier in the game. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine from. Uh, one of the largest treatment centers in Canada. And that, that what you're talking about right there, Mark, I think is so important is that you don't have to wait till you're pushing a shopping cart. <laughs> That's right. You know, there used to be this thinking in the, in the treatment world where you had to hit, hit rock bottom. That's nonsense. You don't have to hit rock bottom. You don't have to lose everything. You, you know, the, the marriage doesn't have to fall apart. You don't have to get fired. You don't no. have to get, you, you just know. got, you just got to be able to see it on the map. And I yeah. saw it. I saw it on the map, and I saw that I was on that road. So I stepped off the road. I said, "Enough." Yeah. And plus, this role that I'm in, right? I uh, any at any time I can get, have somebody who's on the edge reaching out to me. If I got a few drinks in me, what good am I? I'm yeah. not. So it's like I'm always on call. Yeah. And and you know, and I'm not sure it's already happened because. When we tell our stories and we kind of put it out there, we give other permission to see themselves through it and see, see you know, some of their own patterns and to give people that ray of hope. And you may never know the lives that you impact and touch by simply planting seed like this. That's why when I saw you on LinkedIn, I saw the show and I thought this is, yeah, I want to – I've had people come up to me over the years and say, you know, I was in a really bad way and I heard your speech or somebody gave me your book and I was in a real dark place and I'm not today. 
And so having the courage to tell the story, I was telling the, you know, the story and, and being transparent, open and honest in a time like 30 years ago when it wasn't popular. In 98, 99, 2000, people weren't talking about mental health and addiction. I'd get up in front of business audiences and tell them I was a heroin addict who pushed a shopping cart. You could see people physically recoil. And that bothered me. That scared me. But then I thought, I don't, I don't care. You know, good, bad, or indifferent. And you know why? Because there was always somebody in that room that came up to me and said, hey, you know what? Me too. And so if we can provide a platform for people to be heard and people to be seen and give people the courage to say, hey, maybe, you know, I should talk about this or do something about this, give people permission, the ability to step forward. We're doing what Gus did on that park bench. For those of us... For those of us, work, man. for those of us, Joe, that have the courage to tell our story, because it takes a set of nuts on you to to tell your story and to do it, just do it, you know, and to do it in public. That provides so much healing and hope for others. Because if Joe could do it, maybe I can too. Hey, if Mark can do it, maybe I can too. Like whoever it is that they resonate with, and if there's enough people telling their stories and showing. Look, here I am on the other side of it. You're going to well, resonate with somebody because somebody's there's people that aren't going to resonate with me. There's people that aren't going to resonate with you, but they're going to resonate with somebody. And if there's enough stories out there, you're going to find that one that gives you that beacon of hope. And, and that's it. You know, uh, in two weeks, I'm on my way to uh, to Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm speaking to the International Association of Chiefs of Police. So I'm going to tell that story about Scotty and the impact that Scotty had in my life, right? But I think one of the key things that we need to do in all professions is to tell more of the stories, right? We need to provide people a doorway out and to point to some of the key things. But the more stories we tell, this is sort of the operation, the tactical operational stuff for collapsing stigma. You know, it's it's funny because in you know part of part of me thinks. Uh, the anonymous component of recovery isn't uh, isn't necessarily the best thing because anonymously we're we're stuck in a church basement we're not out there and I chose to I don't I don't divulge where I go because that that would be a breach of those those rooms tradition so I don't do that I don't say I go to this club or that club but I do say I belong to one and I have been doing that for a long time. And so I'm able to stand in front of business audiences or government or safety professionals or, or, or kids in high school and say, this is me. Love me, hate me, but never forget the story. It's, and that gives people permission, right? And, and if enough of us do that, Mark, enough of us sort of cast away that thing that says, I don't, you know, I'm going to have the courage to, to do that. I think that that's, that's the move in the right direction for making it okay to not be okay. Well, that's why it's so terrifying for people to reach out the first time. The first time I reached out, that was a thousand, town, a thousand pound telephone, right? It's yeah. the toughest phone call, the toughest cold call I've ever made in my life. And I've made some tough ones was, was uh, because you have to put your ego aside and go, holy shit, I don't got this. I, I, I need help. I cannot do this by myself. I fucking need help. And yeah. that, that first reach out. So that's where it being anonymous in the beginning, yeah, it, it makes true. sense because it's easier to reach out for that help. However, if you truly want to heal, 
you can't do that and hang on to the shame. Yeah. If, if it's a secret, you're hanging on to the shame. Yeah, I like that. I, and I'm glad you clarified that because you don't, on your first day, you don't stand on your desk <laughs> and say, hey, everybody. Uh, I, I, so I'm, I'm really glad you clarified that. You know, it's funny you talk about that 200-pound phone. I've, I've heard that analogy so many times. And, you know, one of the things I like best is you can't save your ass and your face at the same time. <laughs> and and <laughs> because when I remember when I first heard that in the recovery rooms, I went, yeah, I like that. Because it's true. It, you know, a lot of times that's what it's about. I've got to do something to, you know, um, to sort of deal with the crisis. And, and you know, I may not look, I may not look really, really good uh, in, in this process, but this is what needs to happen in order for me to heal. And over time, you start to get these, you know, you kind of get these calluses. And, and I'm okay. It's actually helped me as a leader, too to be honest, as a leader and as a dad, to be okay being wrong, to be okay not having it all together and letting people around me know on any given day, you know, it's I may not have all my shit all together, but if you got patience with me, um, in the end, it's a, it's a wash. It'll, it'll come out better. So, What is the most important thing that we can do as a society, do you think, to change how we look at homelessness and to fix homelessness and addiction? To understand that the elements and and it creates, (laughs) that's a big one. It's the same thing that needs to happen in every police force and every fire department and every ambulance service and, and, and in every job in the federal government is to recognize that emotional pain and the subsequent fallout as a result of that addiction, overdose, suicide, are part of a systemic problem that's related to a health epidemic in our respective countries, Canada, the United States, and around the developed world. Until we realize that these are health issues, you know, we're not going to create systemic change. Do you imagine somebody walking into the hospital with diabetes or heart disease and, and they say, well, you know, you ate McDonald's, so we ain't going to help you. Go home and tough it out. There's a group for that somewhere, I think. Yeah, or worse, you fat well, loser. Yeah. Because that, that's, the, that's the true equivalent, right? Because, but why is it that we're a fat loser? Because we morally judge that behavior. We say, well, you're yeah. homeless. You, you, you must have done something to be there. And so the problem is, is the judgment. You That's made, you, you made you poor judge. life choices, Joe. Well, you don't judge people for having diabetes or for having heart that's disease right. or for having stroke. Why do you judge somebody for having a mental health issue? Well, that's what you chose, Joe. You, you chose to do drugs, Joe. What's that? Right, that's what they say. Say, like, well, those are just your poor life choices. You chose to do those drugs, Joe. You didn't have to do that. You, you and, that and that's the problem. Choose, I didn't choose to be traumatized. Exactly. I didn't choose that that's how my brain and neural pathways seem to wire together. Exactly. To, to, to make me, quote unquote, broken in today's, I'm sorry, I'm not as pretty and shiny as the other ones. Yeah. Right. But, but if you think about it, that's absurd, Mark, because. Yeah. The person with heart disease or stroke or diabetes, there's a better argument that you're in that situation because of life choices than the child that was sexually abused 
or the person who saw unspeakable things in war theater or the person who saw one too many gored bodies on the side of the highway as a patrol person. Perfect. And, you know, so like, and, and that's, that's it. Hard, I think, you know, that's the stop. answer. That's the answer to my question right there, Joe, is that, that is, to, to get rid, to get rid of the judgment is the to solution, just, yeah, the solution is to see this not as everybody know, has a story. Yeah, that's it. And, and to understand that, that trauma produces some unsavory behaviors. And as an empathic society, (laughs) we need to not address the behaviors, but address the root cause as as systemically in our healthcare uh, um, uh, providing system. If I can get a hospital bed and get stints for my heart because I didn't exercise, I didn't eat right. And again, no judgment on on somebody if, if they're in that place. We, you know, Regardless, you know, we're going to we're going to support your your health. But why is it that when a you know police officer or someone, you know, they get abandoned because they're not, you know, they don't wear their their wound, their wound. You can't just simply stitch them up and put a bandaid on it and send them home. And so when it's hard like that, it's it's difficult. But I think that the solution is to homelessness, to youth mental health, to suicide, to all of these different things is to look at it as a holistic, systemic breakdown in our healthcare system. Really, I, I think we can, you said it was a giant, huge, big question, but it's really a one word answer. It's compassion. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Compassion replaces judgment. And with that compassion, to stop saying the ridiculously terrible things like, well, you made your choices, Joe. You chose to do those drugs. Nobody made you do those drugs, Joe. To get rid of that bullshit and to quit being a douchebag to each other and to just take a moment and go, wait a second. Everybody's got a story. I'm not holier than now. I'm not better than everybody has a story. Maybe I should take a breath and take a moment to try to figure out what that story is because trauma is the bottom line for every disruption that there is from, from somebody who's being an arsehole of a narcissist, right? To sociopaths, to everything that disrupts and, and wrecks society. It all boils down to trauma. And, and not being processed, not being recognized, and not being managed and dealt with and, and uh, supported in the healing journey. That's the root of every problem that there is. Yeah, I, I agree, Mark. And I think that you want to foster and build, it, you know, when you look at it and say, where does personal responsibility come into this? Try and provide as many doorways out as possible for the individual to, to, to take that courageous first step forward. I'm, I'm not here today because I'm special and I pulled my socks up. I'm here because Gus was there because Scotty McLeod intervened with me because mom provided a roof over my head. And then I had access to drug treatment, counseling, vocation, retraining in college, and then an opportunity to get a job, so all of those pieces, if you were to take some of those pieces away, I wouldn't be, my story would not have 
been the way it is. And so, and none of it you did on yourself, on your own. Every every major moment that you've shared with me in this conversation today, Joe, somebody took a breath and was kind and saw you as being more than what you appeared to be. Every single moment where you made a major change for the better, somebody saw something in you. Yeah. My, I've said this often, especially when I'm talking to police or fire, and I know I would have said it in Calgary uh, when we met a few years ago. I'm here today because of over 10,000 people. Um, I'm just, I'm lucky enough to have fallen into a safety net where people loved me until I was ready to love myself. And, you know, a couple years ago, we got a call from the governor general and this little pin that I wear right here, it's actually, you can get this for, for military service for a country, or you can get it as a civilian. It's the Meritorious Service Medal of Canada. And uh, I remember when we got the call from the governor general, and what flooded my very emotional day for me to be acknowledged um, by the Governor General and the Government of Canada. But the big piece that came for me is I thought about all the thousands of people that helped me get to where I'm at today so that, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I have hope today. I have purpose. I don't feel like killing myself today. That's... Uh, that's a far cry from where I'm at. And you said it perfectly, Mark. If I can do it, anybody can do it. I'm not special. In fact, for many years of my life, I lacked discipline, self-control, all those, all those pieces. But today I got the cheese on my cracker, and I'm, I'm, I'm having a go at it a day at a time, and we're, we're doing not too bad. So, and so for anybody who's, who's listening who might be you know, struggling, all you got to do is get through today, man. Put your shoes on. Put your, you know, it's the metaphor. Put your, put, put your shoes on today. Get up off that couch. Do something, even if it's just the, the sink full of dishes. Brush your Call teeth, friend, man. Yeah, take the garbage out. Yeah, something, 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 and do it on a regular basis. I think mm-hmm. we're about there for today, Joe. Um, I'm. Thank you again. I am so happy uh, that uh, that you are on today. But it's also what a fantastic, powerful conversation that we've had today. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Any any time. This, um, this is how we fix it, Joe. It's these conversations. This is how we fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate the platform. My my why today is to try and share my little my sad ass story with as many people as I can with the time I have left and yeah. give people permission to have hope and give people permission to be broken and okay today. And so thank you very much. And, uh, you know, God bless you for the work you do. And, uh, yeah, just keep that mic live. Well, episode 192, and I got no end in sight. So I sure as hell will. Stay on the line, Joe. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. And really, if we're going to be honest about it, for anybody that's trying to recover from trauma. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. 
Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring. Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada, with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. Thank you.